Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're talking about the Booker Prize-winning author Barry Unsworth's follow-up to his Booker Prize-winning novel, Sacred Hunger, which is another novel, and it's called Morality Play. It takes place in the 14th century. It's got a sick cover in the hardback version. It was published in 1995. When I want to read a book that takes me elsewhere, usually Mediterranean Europe, sometimes the Middle East, often at some politically volatile time in the past, I turn to Unsworth. This is what I was led to expect with my first and amazing encounter with his work, Pascali's Island. And since reading that truly outstanding tale told by a lowly servant of the decaying Ottoman Empire marooned on what will soon be a Greek island, I have gone back to the same author for The Ruby in Her Navel and Land of Marvels, neither touching the heights of Pascali's Island, which of course did have the irresistible set on a Greek island factor going for it, which I think I mentioned in past podcasts, but both decent reads. Morality play, however, takes a major turn from the warmer lands that are the settings of all these three novels. This one is set in the cold, in December, in England, in the 14th century. So, no ouzo, no resort towns, and lots of wet filth in the most literal sense. A morality play is a theatrical production that is medieval-ish, renaissance-ish in origins, and I'm sure there's more than one scholar out there who can be far more precise. In my defense, I can say the periods are not nearly as distinct from one another as the terms suggest. That most medieval of pastimes, witch burnings, was still regular entertainment well into the so-called rebirth of European culture. And that rebirth itself touched only a small portion of society. Create your own Venn diagram accordingly. In any case, for the oral culture that did exist at that time, morality plays taught lessons to their audiences by reenacting familiar episodes from the Bible or popular myth, usually with actors personifying virtues and vices. I know what you're thinking, super entertaining. What happens in the novel morality play, though, does actually have the promise of entertainment. The story is narrated by a monk on the run, outside his parish, and therefore in violation of the law of the land. And it begins when this monk crosses paths with a troop of actors, people who are allowed to circulate through the English countryside, provided they've been given permission by the governing lords. It seems then that this monk on the run is in luck. If he blends into the troop, he could very well find his ticket out of trouble. Only one problem— the fact that acting is one of the practices that is expressly forbidden to men of the church. It turns out, however, that the animus is mutual. The anti-clerical force among the troop is strong. They don't want churchmen around, and who could blame them? For one, men of the church were seen as corrupted, power-hungry individuals, and often parodied as such in morality plays. For two, actors got their patronage from lords, not the clergy, and the two forces did not mix. In this meeting between the monk and the actors, however, each party has something the other needs. The troupe has just lost one of its actors. The monk needs cover as he makes his way through the countryside. 
So maybe there is a match to be made. The troupe puts the monk through a rigorous audition. Twist your arm this way. Catch a ball. No, seriously, that's the audition. And without a callback, he is hired. The newly expanded troupe makes their way to the nearest town to bury their recently deceased member, and this is where the real action of the novel begins. Arriving late in the day, they find shelter in the village inn and wait till the next morning to arrange for the funeral. Before that happens, though, they hear some local news. A body has been discovered. The body of a 12-year-old boy. The boy is named Thomas Wells. Furthermore, the authorities have identified a suspect and arrested her. Yes, her. It's a young woman. In order to recoup some of the funds spent on the detour and burial, the players set up a performance in the courtyard of the inn. It's a play about Adam and temptation, but it isn't much of a success, not when competing against the more riveting background tale about the young boy and the woman who murdered him. The senior player of the troupe, Martin, laments the secondary status of the troupe to the narrator. According to Martin, the problem is not merely that their stories aren't gripping the crowds as they once did. It's that their little troupe, a legitimately indie outfit, now finds itself competing with studio system-sized productions financed by bigger patrons and budgets. We are only six players, Martin said. What can six do? All we own goes on the back of a cart. Now there is coming more and more the big cycles of plays that are put on by the guilds. From Scotland to Cornwall, it is happening, wherever people live together in numbers. In Wakefield now, or in York, they will put on 20 plays. They will go from the fall of Lucifer to Judgment Day, and they will take a week to do it. They have all the wealth of the guild to call on, and they do not count the cost as it serves the fair name of their town. How can we match them? As it turns out, though, this last question of Martin's, how can we match them, is not rhetorical. Martin has a plan. It involves the murder of young Thomas Wells. It turns out the facts of the case, to which Martin has been paying particular attention, do not, as they say on TV, add up. So what if, Martin reasons, instead of putting out another reenactment of Adam or Eden or the Flood, the troupe do a play on the murder of Thomas Wells? The monk is horrified by the idea of creating an original play, and what's more, one based on contemporary events. Yes, I am italicizing the words original and contemporary. I remember what was said between Martin and I that night, and the changing expressions on that lean face of his. He had done already what he could always do with frightening ease. He had passed from notion to intention to strategy, as if between them there was no curtain, nor even a screen of mist. What the monk is sensing is that Martin has been ruminating about this idea of creating a play, a play based on contemporary events, for a while. Thing is, at that time, the 14th century, creating art is not something that actors, painters, musicians, what we today would call artists, it's not something they did. Their task was to recall, to perpetuate, to transmit convention. And if originality ever entered the picture, it was more accident than intention. What Martin was seditiously suggesting was that the troupe intentionally break this mold. And this is exactly what they do. 
and it leads to immediate and unpredictable consequences. The first consequence is a good one. The play of Thomas Wells is advertised throughout the village, and the courtyard of the inn palpitates with anticipation. The crowd is enormous and enthralled, and the troupe make more money that night than ever before. But as you know, mo money, mo problems. The troupe decide to act out the play again to get more box office, and as a result, the play gets interest from forces outside the crowd. There is a justice who has arrived to oversee the trial. There are men who foment against the church who see the play as a plausible alternative theory of the crime. And all of this stirs trouble for the actors. A medieval acting troupe's decision to create an original play based on contemporary, earthly events is a brilliant subject for a novel. Martin's decision to stir the troupe in this direction is precisely when the light turns on in this book, and that's because it's also when the light turns on in literature as we know it. The move to write about the present, the fallible, the human, is what gives birth to the novel. Don Quixote, Gargantua and Pantagruel, These first novels were exercises in bringing the morality plays of their time, about virtuous knights and the good deeds of pious citizens, to an earthly plane, where the audiences discovered these characters were multifaceted, flawed, fascinating. For audiences, for us, it's exciting. We want protagonists, not heroes, openings, not closures. And it's exciting in morality play as well, as the reader begins to understand the plot on at least two levels appreciating the events on the page, while also thinking about what these events mean in a philosophical sense, sometimes alongside the characters themselves, including the narrator who frets about all this invention. Players are like other men. They must use God's meanings. They cannot make meanings of their own. That is heresy. It is the source of all our woes. It is the reason our first parents were cast out. And I mean, he is right. They are fucked, and we're fucked. Once humans get into the world creation process, usurping the one, the only one, who is supposed to be in charge of this domain, it can only go downhill, which is what happens on a micro scale in this novel. To say too much more would spoil it, but the idea is certainly a good one. For all its ambition, though, morality play is not primo Barry Unsworth. For one, it's oddly static. One example of this is the author's strange habit of saying many things in this novel twice. For instance, the first chapter, where the monk approaches the actors, is basically repeated without being advanced in the second chapter. It's like being in a time warp. Did that first chapter even happen? Yes, I see it did. But did it? This redundancy occurs on the level of the sentence, too. The actors typically gesture rather than speak when they perform, but nearly every gesture being described is then explained. Martin broke into mime, first with the snake sign of tonsure and belly, then the flexing of fingers to show money, then two quick steps, and the twisting movements of search and find. This done, he took up the posture of question, head tilted stiffly to the left, right hand held at waist level with thumb and forefinger extended. There's just way too much of Stephen touching his nose to indicate X and Springer showing his left instep to communicate Y. The challenge would have been to find words that convey an action and its meaning at once. The effect of keeping the two distinct, as Unsworth does throughout, is to distance us from the story. 
You can't be immersed in the scene when someone is constantly whispering in your ear what you're meant to be watching and thinking. At the risk of repeating myself, which in the circumstances does seem apt, if not exactly excusable, morality play provides a setup in which Unsworth would seem to excel. The idea that art can change, can be responsive to its context, can take in the low world of the everyday and make it the most important thing in our lives, all this brings morality play close to The Dialogic Imagination by M.M. Bakhtin, B-A-K-H-T-I-N, one of the books that best spells out the origins and possibilities of fiction. But for all the potential at its command, morality play is unaccountably low wattage, Unsworth is excellent at bringing us to faraway places. I think that may be his genius and one of the reasons I keep reading him. But once we've arrived there, he's not as sure-handed. I wish he had shorn the plot of this novel, gotten closer to the essence of his story about the birth of a new kind of art, and opened the possibilities therein. Instead, he ties his investigations to a strangely conventional plot, which is an unfortunate irony of this novel, a story that was set up to be about newness. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of My Name is Asher Lev by Chaim Potok. Burning Books is part of the Litopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to litopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. My thanks to Natalie Matheson for the voice. What can... How... Oh, wait. <laughs> um, to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. H. Yeah, you say that so weird. That's what H. I thought you it's said. Not, it's not... <laughs> and as always, go Jays. Really?